Section three of the Life of Abraham Lincoln, Volume two, by Ida Tarbell. The Sleepervox recording is in the public domain. Chapter twenty three: The Beginning of Civil War, Part one. It was on April ninth, eighteen sixty one, that the expedition ordered by President Lincoln for the relief of Fort Sumter sailed from New York. The day before, the governor of South Carolina had received from the president the notification sent on the 6th that he might expect an attempt to be made to provision the fort. Ever since Mr. Lincoln's inauguration, the Confederate government had been watching intently the new administration's course. Sumter, it was resolved, should never be captured, reinforced, even provisioned. When it was certain that an expedition had started for its relief, an order to attack the fort was given, and it was bombarded until it fell. The bombardment of Sumter began at half-past four o'clock in the morning of April 12th. All that day rumors and private telegrams came to the White House, reporting the progress of the attack and Anderson's heroic defense, but there was nothing official. By evening, however, there was no doubt that Fort Sumter was being reduced. Mr. Lincoln was already formulating his plan of action, his one question to the excited visitors who called upon him being, will your state support me with military power? The way in which the matter presented itself to his mind, he stated clearly to Congress when that body next came together. The assault upon and reduction of Fort Sumter was in no sense a matter of self-defense on the part of the assailants. They well knew that the garrison in the fort could, by no possibility, commit aggression upon them. They knew, they were expressly notified, that the giving of bread to the few brave and hungry men of the garrison was all which would, on that occasion, be attempted, unless themselves, by resisting so much, should provoke more. They knew that this government desired to keep the garrison in the fort not to assail them, but merely to maintain visible possession, and thus to preserve the Union from actual and immediate dissolution, trusting, as herein before stated, to time, discussion, and the ballot box for final adjustment. And they assailed and reduced the fort for precisely the reverse object, to drive out the visible authority of the Federal Union, and thus, force it to immediate dissolution. And this issue embraces more than the fate of these United States. It presents to the whole family of man the question whether a constitutional republic or democracy, a government of the people, by the same people, can or cannot maintain its territorial integrity against its own domestic foes. So viewing the issue, no choice was left but to call out the war power of the government, and so to resist force employed for its destruction by force for its preservation. This was not Mr. Lincoln's view alone. It was the view of the North. And when, on April 15th, he issued a proclamation calling for 75,000 militia and appealing to all loyal citizens to favor, facilitate, and aid this effort to maintain the honor, the integrity, and the existence of our National Union and the perpetuity of popular government, and to redress wrongs already long enough endured, there was an immediate and overwhelming response. The telegraph of the very day of the proclamation announced that in almost 
every city and town of the north volunteer regiments were forming and that union mass meetings were in session in halls and churches and public squares what portion of the seventy-five thousand militia you call for do you give to ohio we will furnish the largest number you will receive telegraphed the governor of that state in response to the president's message indiana whose quota was less than five thousand men telegraphed back that ten thousand were ready we will furnish you the regiments in thirty days if you want them and fifty thousand men if you need them telegraphed zachariah chandler from michigan so rapidly did men come in under this call for seventy-five thousand that in spite of the efforts of the war department to keep the number down it swelled to ninety-one thousand eight hundred sixteen it was not troops alone that were offered banks and private individuals offered money and credit supplies of every sort were put at the government's order corporations sent their presidents to washington offering railroads and factories stephen douglas sought lincoln and offered all his splendid power to the administration edward everett who had strongly sympathized with the south declared for the movement individuals suspected of southern sympathy were promptly hooted off the streets and newspapers which had been advocating disunion were forced to hang out the stars and stripes or suffer a mob to raise their establishments the fall of sumter seemed for the moment to make a unit of the north patriotic fervor was intensified by the satisfaction that at last the long tension was over nor was this strange for months the war fever had been burning in the veins of both north and south at times compromise seemed certain then suddenly no one knew why it seemed as if another twenty-four hours would plunge the country into war many a public man on both sides had grown thin and haggard in wrestling with the terrible problem that winter and spring congressmen in washington had walked the streets arguing groaning seeking an escape many a sleepless man had tossed nightly on his bed until daybreak then rose to smoke and walk always pursued by the same problems and never seen any final solution but war the struggle had penetrated the social circles particularly in border cities like washington and rarely did people assemble that hot discussions did not rise the very children in the schools took up the debates and for many weeks in washington the school grounds were the scenes of small daily quarrels ending often in blows and tears the fall of sumter ended this exhausting uncertainty henceforth there was nothing to do but range yourself on one side or the other and fight it out but if sumter unified the sentiment of the north it did no less for the south henceforth there was but one voice in the southern states and that for the confederacy north carolina virginia tennessee kentucky missouri arkansas all refused the president's call for troops in virginia a convention was in session whose members up to that day were in the main for the union on april seventeenth the convention passed an ordinance of secession the next day the arsenal at harper's ferry was seized by the state and the southern confederacy at montgomery was informed that virginia was open to its troops the line of hostility had reached the very boundaries of washington 
the bluffs across the potomac now beautiful in the first green of spring on which mr lincoln looked every morning from his windows in the white house were no longer in his country they belonged to the enemy with the news of the secession of virginia there reached washington on thursday april eighteenth a rumor that a large confederate force was marching on the city now there were not over twenty-five hundred armed men in washington regiments were known to be on their way from pennsylvania and massachusetts but nobody could say when they would arrive washington might be raised to the ground before they came a hurried effort at defense was at once made women and children were sent out of the city at the white house mrs lincoln was urged to go with her boys but she refused positively i am as safe as mr lincoln and i shall not leave him was her stout answer guards were stationed at every approach to the city cannon were planted in commanding positions while the government officials foreign ministers governors senators office-seekers were pressed into one or the other of two impromptu organizations the clay battalion of cassius m clay and the frontier guards of senator lane of kansas for a short time the frontier guards were quartered in the east room of the white house and clay's battalion at willard's hotel which had been stripped of its guests in a night the confusion and alarm of the city was greatly increased on friday by news received from baltimore the sixth massachusetts en route to the capital had reached there that day and had been attacked as it marched through by a mob of southern sympathizers four of its members had been killed and many wounded no troops should go through maryland the people of baltimore declared whose purpose was to invade virginia and coerce sister states that evening about five o'clock the regiment reached washington dusty torn and bleeding they marched two by two through a great crowd of silent people to the capital behind them there came in a single line seventeen stretchers bearing the wounded the dead had been left behind early the next day saturday the twentieth a delegation of baltimore men appeared at the white house they had come to beg mr lincoln to bring no more troops through their city after a long discussion he sent them away with a note to the maryland authorities suggesting that the troops be marched around baltimore but as he gave them the letter mr nicolay heard him say laughingly if i grant you this concession that no troops shall pass through the city you will be back here to-morrow demanding that none shall be marched around it the president was right that afternoon and again on sunday and monday committees sought him protesting that maryland soil should not be polluted by the feet of soldiers marching against the south the president had but one reply we must have troops and as they can neither crawl under maryland nor fly over it they must come across it while the controversy with the baltimoreans was going on the condition of washington had become hourly more alarming in eighteen sixty one there was but one railroad running north from washington at annapolis junction this line connected with a branch to chesapeake bay at the relay house with the baltimore and ohio to the west at baltimore with the only two lines then entering that city from the north one from harrisburg the other from philadelphia 
on friday april nineteenth after the attack on the sixth massachusetts the maryland authorities ordered that certain of the bridges on the railroads running from baltimore to harrisburg and philadelphia be destroyed this was done to prevent any more trains bearing troops entering the city the telegraph lines were also partially destroyed at this time inspired by this example the excited marylanders in the course of the next two or three days tore up much of the track running north from washington as well as that of the annapolis branch and still further damaged the telegraph exit from washington to the north east and west by rail was now impossible on sunday night matters were made still worse by the complete interruption of the telegraph to the north the last wire had been cut all the news which reached washington now came by way of the south and it was all of the most disturbing nature from twelve to fifteen thousand confederates were reported near alexandria and an army under jefferson davis was said to be ready to march from richmond the alarmed citizens expecting hourly to be attacked were constantly reporting that they heard cannons booming from this or that direction or had seen scouts prowling around the outskirts of the town the activity of the war department under these conditions was extraordinary general scott had only four or five thousand men under arms but he proposed if the town was attacked to contest possession point by point and he had every public building, including schoolhouses, barricaded. At the Capitol, barricades of cement barrels, sandbags, and iron plates such as were being used in the construction of the dome were erected ten feet high at every entrance. In all his efforts, the general was assisted by the loyal citizens. Even the men exempted from service by age formed a company called the Silver Greys, and the soldiers of the War of 1812 offered themselves. By Tuesday, April 23rd, a new terror was added to the situation, that of famine. The country around them had been scoured for provisions, and supplies were getting short. If Washington was to be besieged, as it looked, what was to be done about food? the government at once ordered that the flour at the georgetown mills some twenty five thousand barrels be seized and sold according to the discretion of the military authorities in its distress it was to mr lincoln that the city turned the fibre of the man began to show at once bayard taylor happened to be in washington at the very beginning of the alarm and called on the president his demeanor was thoroughly calm and collected taylor wrote to the new york tribune and he spoke of the present crisis with that solemn earnest composure which is the sign of a soul not easily perturbed i came away from his presence cheered and encouraged however the suspense of the days when the capital was isolated the expected troops not arriving an hourly attack feared wore on mr lincoln greatly i begin to believe mr hay heard him say bitterly one day to some massachusetts soldiers that there is no north the seventh regiment is a myth rhode island is another you are the only real thing and again after pacing the floor of his deserted office for a half hour he was heard to exclaim to himself in an anguished tone why don't they come why don't they come the delay of the troops to arrive was perhaps the most mysterious and terrifying element in the situation for mr lincoln 
he knew that several regiments had started and that the seventh new york was at annapolis having come down chesapeake bay why they did not make a way through he could not understand the most disquieting rumors reached him now that an army had been raised in maryland to oppose their advance now that they had attempted to come up the potomac and were aground on virginia soil at last however the long suspense was broken about noon on thursday the twenty fifth the whole city was thrown into excitement by the shrill whistle of a locomotive a great crowd gathered at the station where the seventh new york was debarking the regiment had worked its way from annapolis to the city building bridges and laying track as it went worn and dirty as the men were they marched gaily up pennsylvania avenue through the crowds of cheering weeping people to the white house where mr lincoln received them the next day twelve hundred rhode island troops and the butler brigade of fourteen hundred arrived before the end of the week there were said to be seventeen thousand troops in the city and it was believed that the number could easily be increased to forty thousand mr lincoln had won his first point he had soldiers to defend his capital but it was evident by this time that something more was necessary than to defend washington when on april fifteenth mr lincoln called for seventy-five thousand men for three months he had commanded the persons disturbing the public peace to disperse and retire peacefully to their respective abodes within twenty days from date in reply the south had marched on his capital cutting it off from all communication with the north for nearly a week and had so threatened harper's ferry and norfolk that to prevent the arsenal and shipyards from falling into the hands of the enemy the federal commanders had destroyed both these fine government properties before ten of the twenty days had passed it was plain that the order was worthless i have desired as sincerely as any man and i sometimes think more than any other man said the president on april twenty seventh to a visiting military company that our present difficulties might be settled without the shedding of blood i will not say that all hope is yet gone but if the alternative is presented whether the union is to be broken in fragments and the liberties of the people lost or blood be shed you will probably make the choice with which i shall not be dissatisfied if not as yet quite convinced that war was coming mr lincoln saw that it was so probable that he must have an army of something beside three months men for the very next day after this speech the secretary of war mr cameron wrote to a correspondent that the president had decided to add twenty-five regiments to the regular army there was great need that the regular army be reinforced at the beginning of the year it had numbered sixteen thousand three hundred sixty seven men but a large part of this force was in the west and the efficiency of the whole was greatly weakened by the desertion of officers to the south three hundred thirteen of the commissioned officers nearly one-third of the whole number having resigned to mr lincoln's great satisfaction this disaffection did not extend to the common soldiers and common sailors to the last man so far as is known he said proudly they have successfully resisted the traitorous efforts of those whose commands but an hour before they obeyed as absolute law 
it was on may third that the president issued a proclamation increasing the regulars by twenty two thousand seven hundred fourteen and calling for three years volunteers to the numbers of forty two thousand thirty four but the country was not satisfied to send so few when the war department refused troops from states beyond the quota assigned governors literally begged that they be allowed to send more you have no conception of the depth of feeling universal in the northern mind for the prosecution of this war until the flag floats from every spot on which it had a right to float a year ago wrote galusha a grau on may fifth in my judgment the enthusiasm of the hour ought not to be represented by flat refusals on the part of the government but let them troops offered above the quota be held in readiness in some way in the states a meeting of the governors of the western and border states was held in cleveland ohio about the time of the second call and mr randall the governor of wisconsin wrote to lincoln on may sixth i must be permitted to say it because it is a fact there is a spirit evoked by this rebellion among the liberty-loving people of the country that is driving them to action and if the government will not permit them to act for it they will act for themselves it is better for the government to direct this spirit than to let it run wild if it was absolutely certain that the seventy-five thousand troops first called would wipe out this rebellion in three weeks from to-day it would still be the policy of your administration and for the best interest of the government in view of what ought to be the great future of this nation to call into the field at once three hundred thousand men at the same time from maine w p fessenden wrote rely upon it you cannot at washington fairly estimate the resolute determination existing among all classes of people in the free states to put down at once and forever this monstrous rebellion under this pressure regiment after regiment was added to the three years volunteers it was mr lincoln's personal interference which brought in many of these regiments why cannot colonel small's philadelphia regiment be received he wrote to the secretary of war on may twenty first i sincerely wish it could there is something strange about it give those gentlemen an interview and take their regiment again on june thirteenth he wrote there is it seems a regiment in massachusetts commanded by fletcher webster and which the hon daniel webster's old friends very much wish to get into the service if it can be received with the approval of your department and the consent of the governor of massachusetts i shall indeed be much gratified give mr ashman a chance to explain fully and again on june seventeenth with your concurrence and that of the governor of indiana i am in favor of accepting into what we call the three years service any number not exceeding four additional regiments from that state probably they should come from the triangular region between the ohio and wabash rivers including my old boyhood home so rapid was the increase of the army under this policy that on july first the secretary of war reported three hundred ten thousand men at his command and added at the present moment the government presents the striking anomaly of being embarrassed by the generous outpouring of volunteers to support its action but mr lincoln soon found that enrolling men does not make an army 
he must uniform arm shelter feed nurse and transport them as needed it was in providing for the needs of the men that came so willingly into service that the administration found its chief embarrassment the most serious difficulty was in getting arms men could go ununiformed and sleep in the open air but to fight they must have guns the supplies of the united states arsenals in the north had been greatly depleted in the winter of eighteen sixty and eighteen sixty one by transfers to the south between one-fifth and one-sixth of all the muskets in the country and between one-fourth and one-fifth of all the rifles having been sent to the six seceding states the confederates had not only obtained a large share of government arms but through january february march april and may they bought from private factories in the north under the very noses of the united states officers this became such a scandal that the administration had to send out an agent to investigate the trade at the same time the federal ministers abroad were warning mr lincoln that the south was picking up all the arms europe had to spare and the north was buying nothing the needs of the arms opened the way for inventors and washington was overrun with men having guns to be tested mr lincoln took the liveliest interest in these new arms and it sometimes happened that when an inventor could get nobody else in the government to listen to him the president would personally test his gun a former clerk in the navy department tells an incident illustrative he had stayed late one night at his desk when he heard someone striding up and down the hall muttering i do wonder if they have gone already and left the building all alone looking out the clerk was surprised to see the president good evening said mr lincoln i was just looking for that man who goes shooting with me sometimes the clerk knew that mr lincoln referred to a certain messenger of the ordnance department who had been accustomed to going with him to test weapons but as this man had gone home the clerk offered his services together they went to the lawn south of the white house where mr lincoln fixed up a target cut from a sheet of white congressional notepaper then pacing off a distance of about eighty or a hundred feet writes the clerk he raised the rifle to a level took a quick aim and drove the round of seven shots in quick succession the bullet shooting all around the target like a gatling gun and one striking near the center i believe i can make this gun shoot better said mr lincoln after we had looked at the result of the first fire with this he took from his vest pocket a small wooden sight which he had whittled from a pine stick and adjusted it over the side of the carbine he then shot two rounds and of the fourteen bullets nearly a dozen hit the paper it was in these early days of preparing for war that mr lincoln interested himself too in experiments with the balloon he was one of the first persons in this country to receive a telegraphic message from a balloon sent up to make observations on an enemy's works this experiment was made in june and so pleased the president that the balloonist was allowed to continue his observations from the virginia side these observations were successful and on june twenty first joseph henry the distinguished secretary of the smithsonian institution declared in a report to the administration that from experiments made here for the first time it is conclusively proved that telegrams can be sent with ease and certainty between the balloon and the quarters of the commanding officer 
the extraordinary conditions under which mr lincoln entered the white house prevented him for some weeks from adopting anything like systematic habits by the time of his second call for troops however he had adjusted himself to his new home as well as he was ever able to do the arrangement of the white house was not materially different then from what it is now the entrance halls the east room the green room the blue room the state dining room all were the same the only difference being in furnishings and decorations the lincoln family used the west end of the second floor as a private apartment the east end being devoted to business mr lincoln's office was the large room on the south side of the house between the office of private secretary nicolay at the southeast corner and the room now used as a cabinet room the furniture of this room says mr isaac arnold a friend and frequent visitor of the president consisted of a large oak table covered with cloth extending north and south and it was around this table that the cabinet sat when it held its meetings near the end of the table and between the windows was another table on the west side of which the president sat in a large armchair and at this table he wrote a tall desk with pigeonholes for papers stood against the south wall the only books usually found in this room were the bible the united states statutes and a copy of shakespeare there were a few chairs and two plain hair-covered sofas there were two or three map frames from which hung military maps on which the positions and movements of the armies were traced there was an old and discolored engraving of general jackson on the mantel and a later photograph of john bright doors opened into this room from the room of the secretary and from the outside hall running east and west across the house a bell cord within reach of his hand extended to the secretary's office a messenger sat at the door opening from the hall and took in the cards and names of visitors one serious annoyance in the arrangement of the business part of the white house at that date arose from the fact that to reach his office mr lincoln was obliged in coming from his private apartment to pass through the hall as this hall was always filled with persons anxious to see him it was especially difficult for a man of his informal habits and genial nature to get through late in eighteen sixty four this difficulty was remedied at the suggestion of one of his bodyguard a door was cut from the family library into the present cabinet room and a light partition was run across the south end thus enabling him to pass into his office without interruption most of his time while president mr lincoln undoubtedly spent in his office he was a very early riser being often at his desk at six o'clock in the morning and sometimes even going out on errands at this early hour a friend tells of passing the white house early one morning in the spring of eighteen sixty one and seeing mr lincoln standing at the gate looking anxiously up and down the street good morning good morning he said i am looking for a newsboy when you get to the corner i wish you would send one up this way End of section three.